Hello again, everybody. We've got another special ML Ops community podcast for you. Today, our guest is Alex Spanos, lead data scientist at TrueLayer. Want to mention one thing before we start, and that is our ML Ops community Slack channel. If you're not already in it, what are you doing? Come on, get in there, share your voice on anything and everything machine learning and ML Ops. We'd love to hear it. All right. Hope you enjoy this episode. Take care. Let's go ahead and get started. Alex, thank you so much for coming. I appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. This is really exciting. Yeah, thanks for the invite. Really looking forward to, to chatting with you. So for anybody that doesn't know what Alex does, you can see on most, the, most people. <laughs> <laughs> you can see on that slide that I was just sharing, he's the lead data scientist at TrueLayer. And today we really wanted to talk about machine learning in open banking. Uh, I also wanted to talk about, you wrote a great blog article on the hiring process of a machine learning engineer. And then I wanted to talk about the machine learning infrastructure or the MLOps pipeline that you've created at TrueLayer. Uh, but before we get into any of that stuff, let's go ahead and start with how'd you get into tech? Okay, so I'm probably the only person in the audience who will, who will know this, but uh, the Allstat mailing list. Oh, what is the Allstat mailing list? Okay, so uh, it's interesting. So back in 20, 2009 or something, 2010, I was kind of fresh out of my degree in mathematics statistics, and I was trying to figure out, to be honest, what to do, uh, which direction to go down. And there's this like uh, mailing list. Uh, I was in Greece at the time, and there's this Royal Statistical Society mailing list uh, that was got kind of posting, you know, uh, uh, job uh, adverts, you know, news about like statistics back then. And I saw like, I was looking for, you know, what, what, where am I going to go? Like, I didn't really have a clear direction. And these new like data science, big data kind of uh, messages started coming through. And really like, I had no idea at the time. And it really became interesting to me. Uh, and I started researching online and it was about the time where this really like big explosion was, was happening like in the States and moving over to like to Europe and stuff. And, uh, and yeah, I think that really kind of just being part of like something that's so like evolving and dynamic back then as contrasted to like the traditional statistics, you know, become an actuary or no, no offense, but like, uh, or become, you know, an epidemiologist. Now this is really cool. Okay. But you know, it's a, it's a bit more, um, it was a bit more stagnant and like the tech side became really, really interesting and like being part of something, something big and like, you know. Uh, so yeah, so then I decided like, okay, I probably don't have the, the right skills. I need to upskill a little bit. Uh, and I had the opportunity to do a master's in the UK where I focused a lot on the computational side of statistics, uh, which, okay, which led me to more machine learning, right? Um, and then, yeah, that's more or less how then after that, it's, uh, kind of unfolded naturally, to be honest. Perfect. And what has your trajectory been so far? You went to the UK, you started doing this, you started completing your studies and then you got a job in machine learning right away. Or how did that look? Oh, no. So, so I started out doing like in, in Greece, I was doing like statistical research on biomedical projects. So the epidemiologist thing I said was actually an option for me at the time. 
Um, but then, yeah, I went and did like uh, my master's degree in here in Leeds. Uh, and this kind of uh, opportunity, internship opportunity, came up with uh, with this kind of uh, oil and gas and uh, oil and gas services kind of company that essentially scanned the subsurface for uh, kind of oil reservoirs. And uh, there's a really nice opportunity to introduce machine learning techniques into that process. So I did an internship there, and it was a really good experience, like in terms of the technical. Uh, kind of uh, things I learned and I decided to give it a shot. Uh, to be honest, that was not for me in the end, neither the industry or that much or like the, 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 the mindset, I would say a little bit more like uh, closed as, as an industry, like very much intro, intro, introverted rather than extroverted. So yeah, so uh, a, a big opportunity came along to, after a lot of like effort um it was one of the hardest things that i had to do like at that time you know it wasn't really established data science wasn't really established like in 2014 uh, here in the uk so companies didn't know how to hire for data scientists mostly right uh people will remember that like uh, you had these very these bucket lists of like skills like uh, you need to be like master of algorithms master of statistics master of the universe and it was it was hard to get a job. It was the hardest thing I've I've ever done. When the end, this opportunity came along, and it was with IBM, uh, which was very kind of educational, and a very good kind of transition into like doing data science work formally. Data science work. Uh, it was a, a bit more like on the, yeah, I can go a bit deeper into that. But after IBM, I I moved on to a startup called Black Swan Data, where I worked on like the core data science team building out algorithms for uh, predicting kind of the next big thing in like fast moving consumer goods using social data. That was, that was interesting. And I moved to Trulia about two years ago. So to be honest, it's a bit of a convoluted path, but it's interesting. Yeah, completely. And so now jumping and looking at Trulayer and what what they do. Can you just give everyone a, a bit of background on what they are doing and how they're using machine learning? Okay, I'll start with the most like uh, an interesting introduction. So PSD2. Euro this is a Euro European regulation that came into force a few years ago. And I'm going to give the most like uh, the worst intro to it ever. But uh, essentially what this uh, this, this European regulation, which is called open banking in the UK, uh, was all about kind of forcing uh, financial institutions to open up their uh, their systems uh, for to, to enable kind of uh, innovation in in financial kind of services and financial technology. What does that mean? So the regulation forced banks to create APIs where applications can connect to and fetch data of users who consent for their data to be shared. So one of the best examples I can think of is like Yolt, who are, who are a kind of, you know, personal finance manager, you know, with Yolt, you connect your bank account and it fetches back your, your transactions and you, it does a bunch of stuff on top of that. Right. So to get that connectivity before PSD2, it was all about creating like screen scraping, um, like uh, screen scraping connections, which uh, which is not great for many reasons. 
but PSD2 forced the banks to create dedicated APIs for this. So it opened up a really kind of big... Um, Before PSD2, was it the banks were keeping all this data for themselves and they weren't allowing anyone to get into it? Uh, they would, they would, but it was a little bit... Uh, so applications would have to, to build uh, to essentially reverse engineer the login flows of uh, when you log into open banking, for example. And that was not really scalable and not really like, uh, you know, the bank changes the interface, your whole connection is, is broken, right? So PS, and that's still the case in the US, for example. Uh, but in, the, in, the, in Europe, we have PSD2. So the banks have APIs for this job. You don't have to reverse engineer like uh, the online banking uh, system to, to get users data to incorporate into your application. So yeah, data side is one and payments is another very interesting application whereby you can initiate payments directly from one bank account to go to another, circumventing essentially uh, MasterCard, Visa and other kind of payment processing technologies. Okay, cool. And so then TrueLayer is doing, is doing what in that space? Yeah, so TrueLayer is on kind of, we on both aspects of uh, PSD2. So we have products in the data space and products in the payment space. I personally can speak more about the data space kind of uh, word stream. Um, so essentially we, we're an API company. Uh, we solve like uh, on the data side, the problem we kind of solve is, you know, let's say you're a company like uh, a personal finance manager, right? And you have a bunch of users, or they have different bank accounts. Uh, sorry, they use the bank with different uh, providers. You have the choice of either building out and maintaining all these connections yourself, or you go to a central place who manages all that complexity for you. So TrueLayer are kind of a bridge between the application and the financial institution in that way. Okay, nice. And now when... What exactly are you doing in the machine learning space with with all of that information? Yeah, yeah. So onto onto the cool stuff. So so fetching the raw information is one thing, right? So you can fetch a users. You know, applications can fetch transactions of users upon consent, upon the user's consent, do stuff with them, whatever. Uh, but. But that's, you can do, like, there's so much more one can do. So you can start building interesting stuff on top of the raw transactions. So you could be adding more uh, contextual information. So you can, for example, identify uh, what is the nature of this transaction. Is it kind of uh, regular salary? Is it, uh, if it's spending, is it uh, shopping? Is it like uh, utilities? Uh, sorry. Is it like uh, like paying for petrol? You know, you can do all these and all these interesting things about the nature of the transactions themselves. So that's one layer. And then you can go one layer further. That's not a pun with a like true layer. That was just random, sorry. Uh, and you can build like insights products that are built on top of the raw transactions entirely. So you can say, oh, these are the aggregate behaviors for, for this specific user. So you can say, you know, over time, uh, over category. And this really makes it easier for applications who use us to use those insights directly rather than having to build them out themselves. And this is an area where machine learning 
is currently quite prominent at Trulé. And how did you decide to use machine learning instead of just regular rules-based algorithms? Yeah, so uh, another, another interesting area. So when you, when you start out to, conceptually, when you start out to solve a problem, you, you don't understand the, you don't necessarily understand the complexity when we're talking about like data enabled products. So you start out with the simplest approach possible, right? Uh, and you see where that gets you. You have to then measure and you have to make a, a judgment call whether it's worth going more complex or keeping it simple. Uh, so we, yeah, we started out with rules. We started out saying, uh, okay, if this uh, is a debit card transaction and it uh, contains the string whatever, then it is, you know, contains the string Uber, then it's uh, kind of a, a taxi. Uh, you know, a, um, a taxi kind of type of transaction. Uh, and, and I guess another thing you can do is you can identify the merchant or the entity name from the transaction uh, using a similar methodology. Uh, okay, that works like, that, that works for a certain amount of time, assuming description, transaction descriptions, which we are using are kind of stable. Um, and uh, and they, of course they differ by provider and uh, and yeah assuming that no other kind of logic uh, falls apart then you can maybe identify up to 60 percent of, of you know the overall transactions flowing through your system but that's not enough right you need to do more so you have the option of building a bunch of more rules that are prone to change and break or you can do something different, and as I, the audience, your audience will be very familiar with, of much simpler ways to use supervised learning um, through through kind of human annotation. And um, we made that that judgment call. We always, to be honest, it was always in the back of our minds, but kind of commercial pressure to improve our product and the uh, personal kind of team drive to start making our methods more sophisticated led to us making making the jump. Um, I guess the jump itself was was more gradual. So we started out with a hybrid kind of rules-based machine learning uh, approach. And I guess uh, we are still using that approach um, and we're considering whether to keep it or whether to move to, to a fully machine learning based kind of kind of system. And the first question that pops out in my mind is how long was it and how much suffering was it when you were going through this rules-based and did you instinctively think let's just throw machine learning at it or was it something that it really had to go through the the whole organization and they had to recognize that this was the fix for the problem i think i think like we were, we were pretty autonomous like uh, in the end uh, from from like from a team point of view you know we were expected to get uh, the expectation from the businesses to get this thing working as best as possible. So uh, the, the buy-in wasn't, wasn't really an issue. Um, in terms of like the, the team itself. Um, so, so I guess, um, uh, yeah, we, we, it was just becoming a bit intractable to keep on building rules and, uh, and yeah, just, just uh, for example, reacting to cases where our classification was wrong. 
So you can imagine like users of this classification service uh, were saying, oh, this, this, this is a wrong uh, category. Uh, what can you do about it? So you can either go write a new rule, uh, you know, with whatever that chaos that might entail, or you can actually leverage that feedback from the client in a, in a loop kind of way in order to incrementally improve your, your system. And that's where machine learning like really, really shown as like the golden kind of solution there. Yeah, it starts to shine. And now pivoting to infrastructure, you, you guys decided, hey, well, we need to go into machine learning. We want to use this. How, did, how does your infrastructure look now? How did it evolve over time? Where did you start? Where did you come to and why? Why? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so Trulia runs uh, Kubernetes on AWS. Um, this is our kind of core infrastructure. Um, and I guess the service, the team kind of started working out with, uh, given that it's our core programming language at the moment was in C sharp. Um, so kind of the rules based um, kind of classification engine was uh, was written in in as a microservice in, in C sharp. Uh, so I got to learn a bit of C sharp in, in the process, which I hadn't have any, you know, personally any exposure to before. Um, and, and yeah, so, but when we're talking about introducing like machine learning, uh, I guess your audience would agree that C sharp is probably not the first option one would go with. And uh, I guess it made a lot of sense to, to create our first, I'm not sure if it was the first, but one of the first kind of Python microservices in, in production for, for this use case. Um, so yeah, so uh, microservices, they communicate through REST API. Um, and some, well, there's a mix, but uh, this microservice in specific was uh, written in, in Flask. Uh, so yeah, it's a Python Flask uh, microservice, basically. I think we might have lost Demetrius. <laughs> <laughs> Well, while we're waiting for Demetrius to jump on back on board here, uh, just really quickly, if you have questions, feel free. Uh, you can unmute yourself. Uh, you can also uh, ask a question in a chat or just say, I have a question and, and we'll call on you that way. Um, I think we actually have a question from Chris Harden. Chris, do you want to um, say your question out loud? If you okay. Um, when working in the financial services space, um, decisions that are made on suitability of customers and credit scores need to be auditable down to the decision level. When using machine learning, uh, do you avoid using black box decision making or is there another method you use to overcome this? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I guess uh, our uh, clients, uh, users, in order to uh, identify kind of the credit worthiness of, uh, of their users. So many of our uh, clients are in the credit space in the lending space. So as you can imagine, um, like for example, if we make uh, an estimate on a user's income, which is then in turn used for making uh, a credit decision on that user, uh, then it is very important to be able to reproduce and replay the exact kind of 
uh, machine learning model uh, kind of workflow that produced this estimate. So indeed, the financial services industry is very tightly regulated. Uh, so, uh, and, and added to that, there needs to be a layer, as you mentioned, of interpretability. So clearly there is a big bias uh, for us to use the simplest, the most interpretable kind of algorithm uh, available uh, to us. So we are averse to going more complex than required uh, due to the regulatory kind of environment. Don't know if that answers your question. Uh, absolutely, yes, thank you. Cool, so sorry, I just got, I just <laughs> dropped off for a minute and looks like you had some good questions going on. I see another question in the chat. We can go ahead and answer that real quick before we move forward. Thomas was asking, apart from Python Flask, do you build applications yourself with normal tools or do you use any other library which is a core for the application? So I can only answer in this sense uh, on the Python side. Uh, I wouldn't say I'm the specialist uh, kind of backend engineer at Trulair. Um, in terms of our Python microservices, uh, I guess uh, they're APIs and uh, we t tend to use a mix of different kind of uh, libraries for that. We, depending on whether we're using a synchronous or asynchronous APIs, uh, we tend to use either Flask. We had experimented with Sonic in one uh, occasion and uh, last year Fast API got out uh, was released and I've been extremely impressed with fast API as a whole. Um, so yeah, I don't know again, if that answers your question. I would imagine it does. So let's, um, let's continue. I'm not sure what I missed as far as the MLOps pipeline that you, you put forth, um, and the evolution of that, but I wanted to talk about just these, the regulation and the reproducibility and how important you feel that is when it comes to the, um, the whole pipeline and what you're doing with the data science. Yeah, I guess we covered this a little bit before. So reproducibility is a very strong like requirement in the, in the space we operate. Uh, so yeah, so being able to replay our, our decisions like uh, decisions of an algorithm like made six months ago, uh, you know, need, need, to, need to be there. Like, so can imagine like in, in production, you get a, a different, you know, a, a host of models can be deployed over a period of time uh, and having the ability to pinpoint which exact code kind of produced, which exact result, which data set was used, uh, which parameters we used. All these are requirements for us to be able to replay that decision. Uh, and uh, that's where I guess dot science was uh, was very useful for us as it provided that missing element to kind of a traditional git uh, kind of version control uh, system for being able to track that kind of provenance end to end uh, yeah perfect so I see in the in the chat there's also another question asked by Adam Butler and I also see yours Nick so we'll get to that in a second um, can you get explicit details or infer anything? And if you already answer this, let me know, but, um, can you get explicit details or infer anything about the items that somebody purchased during open banking? Um, for instance, could you differentiate between somebody's purchase at, 
Sainsbury's versus them getting petrol at the Sainsbury's petrol station. So in this specific example, I guess uh, it may be the case. So we, we, the data we have to work with are details about the transaction itself. And these are the description. This is the amount. This is the timestamp. Um, and, and some metadata regarding the nature of the transaction. So how was the payment? So how, you know, what was the kind of transaction method? Um, and, and these are the basic information we, we have to work with. So in this specific example, I seem to remember that Sainsbury's and Sainsbury's petrol station may have a different description. So I think this is something we can differentiate between. But I think the question itself is more about, you know, for example, you have an Amazon uh, transaction, right? Uh, could be anything. So uh, at this stage, we can't differentiate. Um, I've heard of like, um, this, this may be a little bit off topic, but uh, I've heard that Monzo is working with a company called Flux, who do like a receipt. Uh, so they're incorporating like a, some uh, receipt kind of management system, which can tell you more granularly what each transaction is you know, the, the receipt attached to each transaction. And that, in my mind, sounds very interesting. But it's a capability we don't currently have. Uh, we cannot know, right? So if you see an Amazon transaction, five pounds, who knows what it is, right? Uh, that being said, uh, I think there are ways one can understand using, with a large amount of annotated data, there are things that can be done in this space, but we're not there yet. Amazon transaction five pounds. It's probably a face mask, or <laughs> well, or toilet paper. Pounds, Fifty pounds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, getting back into it, um, you mentioned. Well, you mentioned to me before. I don't know if you said it here, but you're using Prometheus and Grafana for monitoring. And can you give us some use cases on how you're monitoring and? how you're setting up the dashboards when you have these and what you're focusing on. Yeah, um, we're an API company. We run on microservices. So as you can imagine, Prometheus is, uh, is kind of the best way to monitor uh, APIs in production. Uh, we, we use Prometheus across our stack. Um, and uh, kind of the machine learning services are no different. So. Uh, for our Flask service, uh, there was a nice library we used called, called Prometheus Flask Exporter, I seem to remember, and which is a nice kind of, uh, you, you know, library that helps you instrument kind of the Prometheus metrics for, for specific uh, Python applications. So um, the way we use it is, yeah, it's a, it's a microservice. We report things like latency, like error rate, uh, as is pretty standard. Uh, but because we're talking about machine a machine learning service, we also surface things like the uh, distribution of inputs over time, distribution of predictions uh, of category frequencies over time, uh, and we use Grafana to to basically show these all these things nicely in a dashboard that we look at every day and uh, smile or or not smile. Uh, we usually smile, but uh, but yeah. Cool. So as you look at the whole MLOps pipeline that you have set up, 
Are there any places where you feel there's a black hole or anything that you would like to fix? You don't feel that you're doing well, or now that time has passed, you feel like this could be done better? Well, that's a, that's an interesting question. I think we're, we're quite happy at the moment. Um, I guess the, uh, to be honest, as a data scientist, what I really want to know is like, is my, is my model making the right call like on aggregate or not? And the way I currently understand this is through proxies, the proxies I mentioned before. Um, I guess what would be really amazing is, uh, and this is me thinking out loud, right? Uh, if we had an automated way to uh, kind of capture the accuracy of, of this service, like in the wild through some programmatically like executed human annotation service on unlabeled, un I'm sorry, on anonymous data, and integrated into the Grafana dashboard, that could be kind of a way to have everything in place, right? Because rather than proxies of the actual performance, you could have the actual, like, you know, human-reviewed performance, maybe on a different time scale, but still it would be in a place where you could actually, you know, see it. But that's me talking out loud here. There you go. Luke is scribbling notes frantically. I can <laughs> see him there. So, it's <laughs> a good product idea. <laughs> so, so uh, there's some there's some questions from Nick. I feel bad. I haven't been ignoring you, Nick. I want to get to some of your questions. You've got some great ones. Let's start from this bottom one. In Prometheus and Grafana, are you limited by its matching to data being by regular expressions as opposed to numerical by data types? Uh, yeah. So. I guess uh, I guess I see where this question is, is coming from. So uh, in terms of like the rule based, uh, it's it's kind of hard to to apply the same logic for the rules based part of the of the system. Um, I guess um, in terms of like the rules, what what we try and do is like we try and uh, uh, like look at the classification, like the, the coverage. So how many of the actual uh, cases were successfully labeled by the rules-based one, and we surfaced this. But yeah, that's a that's a good uh, that's a good shout. Actually, uh, we we use the, the common, the classic kind of API um, metrics in in Prometheus for the rules-based service, but for you know it doesn't exactly kind of um, fall into the same kind of uh, you know monitoring paradigm as the machine learning one at the moment. Perfect. So uh, let's ask another one for, that we had in the chat here and then we'll move on. Um, do you find the performance of Python Flask is okay? Are there limitations with that setup in production? Yeah, so um, it's okay, uh, basically. Uh, obviously, it's, uh, it's a synchronous. It, sorry, it is synchronous. Uh, so uh, I guess there may be cases when we start scaling a lot, when we will probably have to move to, to, to an asynchronous kind. And if we, if our machine learning models become a little bit more sophisticated or not rather sophisticated, I'd say resource intensive, potentially adding a little bit of latency, uh, than what we have today. Um, 
than that could happen by making our kind of API a bit more flexible in terms of, you know, I want to throw the kitchen sink at this problem or I want a light version of the classification that is kind of product choice. Uh, yeah, I mean, we might move to an asynchronous uh, uh, web server, uh, but uh, at the moment it's working fine for us with the scale we currently have. Cool. So moving on to the blog post that you wrote about hiring an ML engineer. It's just as a bit of background information for everyone, can you explain what was going on? You, you were tasked with hiring someone as an ML engineer. Is that right? Yeah. So a lot, lots of questions here. So why an ML engineer, right? What, what, what is the exact skill set we're after? Uh, as we're essentially looking for someone who is very able to take on like generic uh, engineering tasks, but who also have a strong appreciation of like the machine learning workflow end to end. Uh, okay, you're asking for everything here a little bit, which is always the, the pitfall in, in hiring. Uh, so I think in the end, we're looking for someone with very kind of generalist uh, kind of programming skills uh, that are modern and applicable to today's world. I can go a bit deeper into that. But uh, with a differentiation that not everyone has these end-to-end -end, like machine learning, you know, an understanding of, of what machine learning prototyping is, is all about, right? So we're looking for essentially an engineer who gets machine learning. That's like in the, in the nutshell what we were looking for. Cool. So I just saw we got another question from Sebastian and it's more on this pipeline. And so I want to complete that before we jump into this hiring piece. And Sebastian's asking, how much of this machine learning pipeline were you able to automate? Uh, that's a, uh, hmm. so uh, I guess it's, it's automated in the sense that, uh, you know, Kubernetes, uh, from, from the kind of engineering point of view, it's automated through Kubernetes. I guess um, from our side, when we want to, it would be nice to be able to perhaps automate retraining of models once accuracy falls below a specific threshold. That's not something we do today. I think that would be a really cool use case again when we start getting scale and when we are in a place where we can uh, we can establish data pipelines that that update training data uh, kind of more automatically. Uh, so yeah, so I guess if the question is around you know what happens when you want to deploy a new model, yeah, sure it's manual, but then I guess uh, it's taken care of continuous like deployment, continuous integration. And the training is is at the moment automatic, and the deployment is automatic through Kubernetes and GitOps, uh, through the GitOps kind of continuous deployment uh, workflow that we use. I don't know if that answers the question. Um, just a thought here, Alex. It might be nice to share a little bit um, uh, with the group here about how the um, uh, GitHub CircleCI.Science pipeline works and kind of how that how you plug that together. Because I thought that was a really cool piece of engineering that you did, um, and uh, I think that kind of answers yeah. one aspect of the automation question, kind of push to mm -hmm. get. Um, yeah, yeah. A big, a big shout out to my colleague Luca Palmieri, who was kind of who took the lead in 
creating that uh, that integration. Uh, so I guess at Trulayer we want to we're at a size where we want to stick with our existing kind of deployment patterns across all our services. So we were trying to find a way where we can like be able to to deploy machine learning services in pretty much the same way as we deploy any service. So currently we use Circle CI uh, at Trulayer, which uh, which is our kind of build and and deploy tool. And uh, I guess we uh, we use dot science uh, as discussed before, like to to give us that reproducibility and that uh, kind of collaboration uh, dimension that we were looking for. And essentially, it, it was uh, it was not that tricky at all in the end. It was uh, we used the dot science uh, kind of Python library we uh, to to annotate our existing machine learning Python workflow. Uh, so that happened at the application level, and when when we deployed, we essentially uh, triggered a bunch of Circle CI jobs that build uh, build build the service. Then we had a, a train and save flow within Circle CI. So what that, that's the most interesting bit. So the train and save flow essentially spawned off a job in our dedicated kind of dot science cluster on the dot science runner. Uh, that uh, fetched data from an S3 bucket, uh, ran uh, the machine learning workflow, uh, and uh, essentially uh, we could then review the accuracy uh, and performance of of, uh, of that training process. And then there was a bit of a manual step where we had to go back to Circle CI and manually approve the next step, which is the deployment phase. Uh, and uh, and yeah, after that, it was all in Kubernetes territory in terms of deployment. So it was pretty simple, I think, in the end. Uh, the moving parts are, you know, the S the S three bucket, uh, kind of the dot science cluster, and Circle CI <clears throat> in the middle orchestrating the the communication. Um, and yeah, I guess uh, we've been chatting with uh, with dot science about the the chance to automate that flow even further. So I guess now there's the option to actually get a webhook back from, from the dot science uh, kind of job, telling you whether you know the job is finished and whether the accuracy and the, a custom rule you can say where the accuracy is above a certain kind of limit. Uh, yeah, so that's at a high level what we're doing. Nice, cool. So pivoting back now into this hiring and what was going on there, I. I thought it was really interesting in your blog how you talked about the third wave of data scientists. Can you go into that a bit more? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think uh, I'm in a position where I can answer this well because I feel I've been part of like uh, every kind of wave, if you want to call it that. Uh, so I think this all starts to make sense after around 2011 or something. Uh, especially like, okay, we always have like the pioneers that, uh, you know, Google, Facebook, Twitter, whoever, who were like early adopters and early, like, uh, you know, they, they adopted machine learning first and uh, were like on the, on the forefront. But I guess the rest of the world was a little bit using various proprietary kind of tools, doing very similar work, but it was kind of all locked in 
and and pretty like not really it was it's an opaque kind of kind of world and i guess that's the first wave uh in a, in a nutshell and then this big data like uh revolution happened and particularly where i think the second wave kicked in was jupyter notebooks so that that was just a profound moment in the dot sci uh, the data science like uh, <laughs> the data science like community uh and it just opened up like uh python and like data science to to the whole world it was like this this is this brilliant moment and uh, everyone suddenly became i would say including myself everyone suddenly became like a data scientist and there was massive like excitement massive hype uh, of the like possibilities that machine learning and data science can bring to to enterprise to business um and i think we were rolling in that kind of uh wave for maybe 3 or 4 years uh but in the end i think businesses didn't really know how to extract business value a lot of business value out of out of kind of uh you know data science jupyter notebook data science uh, as it was back then so you ended up with situations where you you know it was just like shelfware powerpoints things that were created in a vacuum and were never put in production and i think there was there was a lot of that in in business during the second wave so it was kind of a hype time but uh, a time where business value wasn't optimally extracted and i think the lesson learned there was like that data scientists cannot just be people who you know build you know write jupyter notebooks in a vacuum they have to be involved in the end to end process of actually prototyping something and then ensuring that it gets pushed into production and i think there's a recognition amongst like businesses nowadays that this is kind of you know this is kind of a, a given this is kind of a requirement nowadays for the data scientist or you know machine learning engineer whatever um kind of kind of uh, jobs so yeah working in a vacuum in jupyter notebooks is not an option i think anymore and the whole industry is coming to that realization and i think that's the third wave of like the full stack kind of data scientist great and now talk to us a bit about this idea of the different mentalities between machine learning engineers and data scientists so i think data scientists are are should be used to, to fail a lot right so it's uh so so yeah so yeah so i think like data scientists are specialists in in failure and i mean that in a, in a great way i'm joking so i think data science i do see a distinction so i think data scientists are basically specialists in experimentation uh which means that you're constantly testing hypotheses constantly you know not validating your hypotheses and then you have this mindset you know you have to keep pushing on and in the end you might not even like you know get an answer the answer that you want right so in in a way you you need to be really like tolerant to to failure uh but on the other hand i i think that and that's this is just my point of view right i think machine learning engineer is kind of intolerant like to does not should not tolerate failure i think machine learning engineers are, are more they're more about getting something like and deploying it and putting it out to the world right so this is a process that doesn't shouldn't go wrong this should be a process that you should strive for perfection and it's something that you can do uh machine learning engineers should be able to like create a a model that gets you 80% of the way 
but should be able to put it into production like uh, and, and it should work like that. That is not a failure that the machine learning engineer can tolerate. Uh, so in that case, since I guess the highest level distinction is like focus on experimentation on the data scientist and focus on end to end like function functionality uh, on the machine learning engineer side. And I think that I'm from like data scientists and machine learning engineers I've come across in my career. I think it's difficult to be both. Uh, like to uh, again, people will argue they're pretty much the same, and I do kind of agree. But I think that mentality of like experimentation, of like very focused experimentation, does not translate very well to machine learning engineers. And people may have a different opinion on that. Yeah, that's a great summary of of it. So Thomas has a question here in the chat. He's asking, do you expect this distinct these distinctions will merge together in the near future or and there will be another kind of position or what do you predict and how it will evolve in say 10 years and this was this kind of is is one of the questions i wanted to ask you too is do you feel like there's a difference between a machine learning engineer and an ml ops person is there any if if there is anything yeah so yeah, I think the the names like nowadays, yeah, I don't know how much sense like names make anymore. To be honest, uh, you know, you, you go into a company, you you have a specific, you know, or maybe non-specific, but you you kind of work on stuff, and then you kind of decide whether you know whether you're a machine learning engineer or a data scientist or I don't know. So to be honest, I think names will definitely evolve. Uh, but I also think like, uh, and you guys have, have been saying this too, that I think, you know, the role is evolving and is becoming a little bit more well-defined. So like the machine learning engineer thing, yeah, it's real. It's all about like end-to-end -end stuff. So, so yeah, now going to your machine learning engineer versus MLOps, I would hold my hands up there and say, I don't know, <laughs> but yeah. Uh, Prediction-wise, I think the data scientist thing is not going to be around forever. Uh, I think like it's becoming a little bit. Um, I think there is so much baggage associated with this kind of uh, role name nowadays. Uh, there's a lot of damage as well, like to the, to what it means to be a data scientist. Uh, such an umbrella term, and I think yeah, definitely it will be broken down into into things that make more sense. Where do you see it evolving into? Just more more specific terms. Yeah, I think um, I think we'll probably go back to to more basic stuff. Like, uh, um, so I think I think data scientist might might become like what it once was. So go a little bit. Uh, it will make sense for companies to do R and D and do a lot of like experimentation because it's science role, right? I think uh, things will move more towards the, the engineering uh, naming side. So I think like the machine learning or the, I, I don't know, like data, data engineering, like kind of uh, perturbation will, will become more prominent compared to data scientist. Uh, yeah. I don't know. That's not a great answer, but kind of, yeah. That's no, perfect. It's perfect. And so, I'm wondering about this because you spoke about with like a 
ML engineer needs to be able to work with this end to end and end to end these days is a very big buzzword. And in your blog post, you, you spoke about random buzzwords that companies will put out when they're hiring for uh, an ML engineer. Can you go into that a bit more? Uh, you mean in terms of the buzzwords or like, yeah. And just, and how you feel about what, what that entails, because it's like companies will just throw a, a sheet of buzzwords that they want, but they don't really know what they're actually looking for. Yeah. It's like the trophy data scientist, like uh, a phenomenon that we, we encountered, like, uh, you know, some guy in the, or some, uh, some person in the business like decides, Oh, I want a data scientist. Like I want to look cool to my boss. Uh, how do I, do I actually need a data scientist? Who knows? Uh, what does a data scientist need? Oh, they need MongoDB or they need uh, Spark. Uh, uh, they need, uh, I don't know, like IBM Watson or they need, I don't know. And it's, it ends up like being in these like job specs and you can really easily understand like whether the people, you know, whether the business is serious about who they want to hire just by looking at the job spec nowadays. And I do encourage people to, to really take job specs like with a critical I like ask themselves, does this really make sense? So if I do join this company, do they know what they expect from me? And I think this is a real tell. Uh, but yeah, buzzwords were really entertaining, like uh, a few years ago, especially when we were, it was all like the Wild West. Uh, I, th I wish I, I, I like kept like job like specs and I could make maybe, you know, a little website there, a little collection. Uh, but yeah, avo avoid buzzwords, like avoid shopping lists like if you're putting out specs like just keep it like you know keep it concise and keep it like logical for sure. no unicorns okay there are some unicorns but you're not yeah you know what i mean yeah 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 completely and now it looks like we got about five minutes left i want to make sure that everybody feels like their questions got answered so if anybody has any questions for alex please throw them in the chat or just unmute yourself feel free to say hi and talk. And if not, I'll wait, you know, a good five seconds. And if not, I'll ask my final question. I've got one that may have already been answered. There we go. Go for it, Charles. Sweet. Um, so MLOps to me, I always hear it and think of DevOps. Uh, and obviously we've spent ages in the engineering community desperately trying to make it so that we have this really rigorous way of ensuring that the artifact that I've made on my machine is the same artifact that appears in dev and then it appears in staging and then it appears in prod. In other words, I get no surprises. There's nothing different about what's going in prod. And that goes all the way through to like configuration as well. If you want to make a configuration change, you push it through the pipeline. Like in the ML world, it feels like that's a slightly different paradigm. It almost feels like that's the paradigm you don't want to follow because you want to be changing that, that ML artifact in production. Is, do, do you see like a totally different approach to like operations, deployment operations, changes in production to what we've developed in the world of DevOps in engineering? So I think the, I guess the answer I think is that these things are merging. So the engineering community really learned, really faced these problems like uh, 20 years ago, uh, or maybe, maybe before that, I'm not entirely sure. And I think we're uh, just the past like few years, we've been trying to solve them really well in machine learning. I think uh, we will arrive at similar a similar paradigm, uh, and I think version control and provenance is obviously 
like central central to that but uh but yeah i guess uh, this is a very high level answer but i think uh we will we will be maturing to something that looks similar to what we have in engineering and i guess luke is someone who's a bit of a thought leader as well on that subject uh so feel free to jump in luke well i was just going to say i have opinions on this which is just that um most of the use cases that i've seen are that you are not doing online learning most of the use cases i've seen are the the model isn't actually changing in production and you may be retraining the model very frequently based on new data but you're you should still have an immutable artifact that is a docker container with a model and a model server running in production and you should still um, version those and have full uh, provenance from that model back to where it came from, the data it was trained on and so on. Um, and in that sense, I think that it should be converging on exactly the same solution that DevOps has achieved, except there's, it's more complicated because there's more moving parts like, uh, like data versioning and uh, parameters and, and, and metrics that need to be recorded along the way. That's just, yeah, that's my two pence. <laughs> Nice. Thank you, Luke. Awesome. Anybody, anybody else got anything they want to chime in and ask any questions? My final question is qualities that you feel are important for machine learning engineers. You kind of touched on this, but I just wanted to, to reiterate that. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think uh, I can speak from my own experience. Like I work at a startup. So, uh, I mean, you don't really know a hundred percent what you'll be working on the next day. Right. So in my mind, like, I think number one is like the ability to pick up new stuff, like really quickly. Um, and I think that is a skill. So I think that's a skill that comes from constant, like a passion for self-improvement and a passion for trying new, new stuff out like uh, that your job might even not be giving to you or your current environment might not be giving to you. That might include like contributing to open source. That might contributing to, that might be, sorry, that might be, you know, uh, setting up a, a webcam with like a deep learning model uh, deployed on AWS that identifies like the foxes that come into your kind of garden and, uh, and eat your like plants. Uh, they don't eat plants, but anyway. Yeah, you see what I mean? So, like, it's this uh, constant, like, strive for, like, learning new stuff. I think that's where that comes from. So, I think that's, and, and like, for machine learning, I think we have, we're blessed with this amazing community nowadays. And I think having that passion, that, like, involvement in the community, even a voice in that community. So, you know, an attempt to put your thoughts out there, create a blog. Uh, one would say everyone does that, but really it just shows, like, you know, you really want this, you really, you know, you, you, you're really serious about if you're not already in machine learning or getting into machine learning, like it, it's so important. So I think, yeah, so generalist, I would say generalist, like computing, like cloud, uh, some databases, obviously like a passion for machine learning, but not to the extent that you're going to be, you know, implementing necessarily like the latest paper, uh, it's all about, I think, at least in a startup environment, it's a lot about the generalist stuff. Uh, but that's just my, where I come from. Awesome. Alex, this has been so informative. I am so appreciative that you got on here and you talked with us. If anyone wants to reach out to you, what's the best way to find you? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm really open. Like uh, Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, I guess uh, my details were there. Yeah, feel free to, to hit me up. And I guess I have to say here that we're always hiring for like amazing like backend engineers. And we're always interested in hearing about like machine learning engineers and product managers. Uh, but yeah, uh, actually we're hiring across the board. So feel free to reach out about any of those roles and check there out True Layer. There it is, folks. Alex, I appreciate it. Everyone that came on and shared this time with us, big thank you. I'll be sending you a follow-up email with some links of interest and have a great rest of the week. Take care, everybody. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Thanks, Alex. Bye. Cheers, guys.